Thank you, Pastor Jacob. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and the Bible is a story from Genesis to Revelation describing God's work of redeeming and renewing all of creation. And the Bible is written in different genres, different forms of, of writing that, that allow us to discern meaning and how to understand them and interpret them. We, we have this in our writing today. If you're reading a historical fiction, uh, you're going to interact with that story and book a little different than if you're reading a biography. If you're reading poetry, it's going to be different than if you're reading the newspaper. We just naturally understand this, that the genre of what's written shapes how we understand it and the meaning that we, we get from it. And the same in the Bible. There's a number of different genres. You have poetry. You have like the Psalms, which are a collection of songs and, and poems describing the beauty of God, the deliverance of God, uh, walking with God in, in often pain and suffering, lament, uh, poetries of lament. There's a number of, of poetry and songs in the Bible. There's also songs in, in other books, in Exodus, songs in, in Revelation even. So we see poetry and music in the Bible. There's, there's history in the Bible. You have Gospels and the book of Acts, which is, is not just some uh, detached historical perspective. It's certainly history through the perspective of communicating a message, but nonetheless, it's recording events that, that happened. You have letters, epistles, letters written to specific people and churches. It's why the book of Romans is called Romans, because it's a letter written by Paul to Romans. <laughs> same with the Corinthians, same with First and Second Timothy. These are letters written to a person. You have personal and communal letters. You have prophecy in the Bible. Books like Isaiah and Habakkuk and Malachi. Prophecy which speaks communicating God's will in a particular time and place. You have wisdom literature and the Proverbs and also in a book like James. These are describing just, just wise principles for life. You have parables, uh, stories Jesus tells, which aren't literal events, but they are using metaphors and a story to communicate certain principles. And you also have apocalyptic writing. We see this in books like Ezekiel or Daniel in the Old Testament. And in apocalyptic, it, is, it, it, it has shades of prophecy. It's communicating God's will, but it really it uses images and symbols to awaken our mind and our heart to the truth that God is wanting to communicate. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic. It's, it's written in a way to awaken us to the truth of God's existence, the truth of God's power. And so when there's numbers and symbols, it's, it's, they're not to be taken literally. When it says that Jesus is the lamb, it's not saying that he saw a literal lamb. Right. This is a metaphor describing the meaning of Jesus' life and sacrifice. When it talks about 144,000 people in Revelation chapter 7, it views the church as 144,000 people. It's not saying there's a literally, you could count all the people. There's 144,000 literal people who are the, 
the army of the Lamb. You know, some people believe this. Um, some people's whole concept of going to heaven is built on just 144,000 people. No, it's, it's a symbol. It's, it's reflecting the, the completion, the wholeness of God's people. It's symbolic. And just like in our passage today, we'll look at three and a half years, three and a half days. This is symbolic. It is half of the number seven, half of completion. And so what's the point? You know, here's what I want to say. When we read the Bible, the way to read the Bible is to discern, to try to discern, what was God's message for them then? And then once we can grasp God's message for the original audience, we can then seek to apply in our day and age today. We don't want to take things out of context. We don't want to read just our American issues into the text to try to extract some hidden meaning. No, we want to discern. What was God's message? John, this pastor, is writing this letter, Revelation, to seven churches. And so we should, we should seek to see how did they understand this? How did they apply this to their time and then apply it to our day and age today as well? But that leads to our own, another tension. Our, our worlds are vastly different. Vastly different. Our experience today is very different from the experience of these churches then. Take, for example, even the concept of the persecuted church. Revelation is written to a church that is experiencing persecution under Emperor Domitian. People are losing their lives. They're being tortured for their faith. They're placed in these positions where they're needing to make a decision. Am I going to worship the Lamb and embrace the Lamb and the gospel? Or am I going to cave and worship and submit to Caesar? the emperor of Rome, and, and how one lives that out has drastic implications on their life and their family's life. Puts people in very difficult and hard decisions. We in the American church, we do not experience that persecution today. And praise God we don't. Praise God we, we, we wouldn't want that. But the church around the world does experience. There's persecution in Iran and China, a number of countries around the world where people are, are <clears throat> excuse me, are losing their life because they're walking with Jesus. But many today in America, we want to think of ourselves as being persecuted, but it's just it's just not the case. I mean, people will point to um, not prayer not being allowed in schools, and that's just not true. You can pray in school. A teacher can pray in school, a student can pray in school, but teachers are not allowed to lead the whole classroom in prayer in a public school for, for obvious reasons, because there's people in the classroom who aren't Christians. And just like we wouldn't want to be led in the prayer of another faith, uh, it's, it's just not right to impose Christian beliefs on everyone else. We don't experience persecution. You get tax write-offs for giving to churches. Churches don't need to pay taxes. These are advantages that we have. And, and some today point to the lack of being able to worship during the pandemic as a sign of persecution. And, and no, that's just, that's just not the case. Because restrictions are being put on everyone. Businesses, in some places schools, 
everyone is needing to make sacrifices and make some distance, and some aren't allowed to gather in person, it's not just the churches. And in fact, this idea that we view these types of things as persecution shows that we are used to being in a place of power. The church, the Christian church in the United States, is used to being in a position of privilege and power, not persecution. And so when we're treated like everyone else, we think of it as persecution, but it's not. And so we need to, we need to discern this and, and have the wisdom and humility to call a thing for what it is. We don't experience persecution. Now, what is happening is the Christian church is losing its influence. This is certainly the case in our culture in the United States today. People do not look to... Uh, pastor figures in our culture and leaders in our culture for guidance on how to navigate it as a society. Now, people might look to their particular pastors or look to pastors that they prefer personally. Christians might look to them, but our wider culture, it just doesn't look to the Billy Graham figures of years in the past or even Martin Luther King Jr. figures of, in the past to bring some moral leadership. In fact, it's often the opposite. In our culture today, people, the, the only pastors that seem to make the news are those who are doing silly and sometimes ridiculous things that, that really don't reflect the heart of, of Jesus in the world. Because our, our culture is, is not looking to Christianity for influence. It wants to mock it. And so here's our question again, Discerning the meaning of the text then, how do we apply it today? Acknowledging we do not experience the same persecution they did. But there are really, really important lessons to learn when we think about what does it mean to be the church? What is the church's mission in our day and age today? And Revelation has, in chapter 11, has some real compelling cases to be made about what the church actually is, what is the church's mission. And I want to just tease out briefly three for us this morning. There's a lot of symbols in our passage. I'm not going to get to all of it. As much as I would like to take hours <laughs> diving in here, we're not going to. There's great resources I'm happy to send your way if you want a deeper dive. But we're going to tease out three lessons about the church's mission from Revelation chapter 11. First, the mission of the church, we are to embody the presence of God. The church is the place where God's presence resides. In verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, then a, measuring lot, then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, and I was told, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and the ones who worship there. We see this temple language, and this has been all throughout the book of Revelation. And the temple was the place of God's presence. In the Old Testament, God's people, when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they built a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was basically a portable temple. It was a place where there were altars to offer sacrifice. It was the place where God's presence resided. And then eventually they built a temple. This was the place that embodied God's presence. But now, in between the resurrection of Jesus, and the return of Jesus, God's presence is found in the church. 
And when we think about this time period, you know, where is God in the in-between? There are some numbers here we see repeated. Uh, the number's three and a half. In verse 2 it says, And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. In verse 3, And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Later it says, For three and a half days, in verse 9, For three and a half days, the, uh, from those from every tribe, nation, and language will look at their corpse. This is the two witnesses who were, who were killed. Because they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. This is speaking three and a half. This is represented it's the half, it's half of seven, which is completion. 42 and three and a half in the Old Testament were symbolic between, of the in-between places. The in-between of deliverance from slavery in Egypt and making it to the Promised Land. This time period refers to the church age, the time from the resurrection of Jesus to His return. It's not a literal three and a half years or three and a half days or 42 months. It's symbolic. And what it's saying is in this time, God is choosing to plant His presence in the church. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you, and you here is plural, not one person, but do you, do y'all, not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? Do you see? The church is the temple of God. 2 Corinthians says, For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will live in them and will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The church is to be the place of God's presence. It is where God is choosing to reveal himself. It is where God is planting himself. And so, there's a lot of implications here that we can't get to all. But here's, here's what I want to say. If... If you want to experience God, if you long to experience God, you need to be a part of His church. You need community of God's people. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do this in isolation. You need others. And this is one of the beautiful, compelling concept of what the church is to be. In fact, church, the ecclesia, literally means the, the gathering of the people. It's not a building. It's not a program. It is people where God's presence resides. And this also means for us as a church that God's presence is mediated and experienced through the church, not the pastor. As much as I like to think of myself as a very important person, <laughs> Um, I, at the end of the day, I play an important role in the church, but I am not the church. We are the church. You are the church. So when we have conversations, don't say to me, your church, this isn't my church, this is our church. And also, it's not just the local church. Local churches are important, but it is the larger church, we are, we are part of a global, multi-ethnic, beautiful, sometimes crazy family. These are our brothers and sisters. The church. Not programs, not a pastor, not a building. People. 
That's where God resides. We are the temple of God. But then also, how do we reveal God's presence to the world? What's our posture to the world? And here's the second thing we learn about the church's mission. The church is to be a counter-cultural prophetic witness. Again, looking back at our text in verse 3, it says, And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, is that symbolic, referring to the in-between between Jesus' resurrection and his ultimate return. They will be dressed in sackcloth. That is symbolic for what prophets would wear. Verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. You know, looking here at the lampstands, this was imagery we saw earlier in Revelation, that seven churches were each seen to be lampstands. And so the church here is representative. We're, we're to be a prophetic witness, illuminating God's gospel, God's goodness, God's beauty, God to the world. This, these aren't two literal prophets, okay? This is saying the church is to be the prophetic witness. In fact, two in the Bible is often used as, as uh, to refer to one giving a testimony. Two witnesses were needed for something to be credible and true. God's saying, my witnesses in the world, my prophets in the world today are the church. Now notice, then, these witnesses' relationship to the world. God doesn't send two prophets into the world and, and they enter in and the world says, praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for these prophets. Thank you for their message. Thank you for their testimony. Let's look at the relationship in verse 7. When they, the prophets, have completed their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The, abyss, or the, the beast we'll look at next week. Uh, but this is referring to the systemic oppression of, of human evil and rule. Verse 8, Their corpses will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was also crucified. For three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, and language will look at their corpses because they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. In, in other words, they're dead and they don't want to give them a proper burial. And those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, even sending gifts to each other, because the, these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, what, what do we make of this? This is symbolic again. This is not two literal people. It's symbolic for the church and its relationship to the world. That we are to be a countercultural prophetic witness testimony to the Lamb, that's who's on trial, right? Jesus is on trial, and we're pointing to Him, witnessing Him, testifying about Him, and the world's response is it, it hates the church. It wants to kill the prophetic witnesses. And when they die, it celebrates their death. The world and the system of evil represented by Babylon and Rome and numerous other empire sense is not a friend of the church. It's not. And we shouldn't be surprised when that's the case. Um, you know, and we see this play out in our culture today. People, 
they, they want to hate the church, okay? Our, our world will find the worst expressions of Christians and will continually put them on the, the television screen, on their media, because they want to show that Christians are ridiculous. And they will take the churches that say there's no coronavirus and they will make the news. But the, the thousands of churches that are adhering to restrictions and rules and, and being wise about this, they, they, they don't make the news. They will find the Christians who say ridiculous things and they make the news, but the countless Christians and pastors and people who really love their neighbor, they, they don't make it because our world is hostile. The world does not want to see the church succeed. We have different missions. You see, the mission of the church is to embody God's presence. The mission of the church is to bring a genuine sense of justice. The mission of the church is to bring unity and love and compassion. It's to unite people, not divide everyone. We have very different missions, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man, very different and very hostile. And we need to be wise about this. We need to understand this. And we need to not be surprised. We need to not, we, we need to not be surprised that it is what it is. You know, what doesn't make it on our Twitter feeds and on on the news is the innumerable, the innumerable Christians doing good. The innumerable Christians serving in the medical field. So many nurses and doctors and people in medicine are motivated. They want to help people. And part of that motivation is, is from a faith that says we are to love and care. You know, we have Jesus as the great physician, right? That doesn't make it. But we'll put people up who are questioning whether coronavirus is real. What doesn't make it on our Twitter feeds are the countless Christians who are sacrificing their homes and resources and time to care for orphans. Not just in the U.S., but around the world. <laughs> but our world will take that and say, oh, we'll see the Christian is just trying to exploit everybody. No, Christians do so much good. But our world, because of its mission, will not acknowledge it. And we, we just need to understand that, that the kingdom of God is not friends with the kingdom of man. We have different missions. And lastly, again, the church embodies God's presence. The church um, is a countercultural prophetic witness. And lastly, the church reveals the goodness of the Lamb through suffering. The church reveals the beauty and power and gospel of Jesus Christ primarily through how we suffer. You know, the suffering of God's people is a, a consistent theme in the book of Revelation. They're experiencing judgment. And it's really interesting and I hadn't noticed this until a few days ago where um, a, a scholar pointed out that God's judgment in Revelation is not what leads to other, others to repent. God's judgment is not the primary means that leads others to repent. What the primary means that leads others to repent and embrace the Lamb is the suffering of the Lamb's people. Let me repeat that again. What, what awakens someone's mind and heart to the Lamb? 
What leads someone to want to be a part of the Lamb and His people? It's not a message of judgment. It's not. It is an embodied living of sacrificial love that is expressed through suffering, through the suffering of God's people. You see, in our day and age today of hostility toward the church, in our post-Christendom age where people want the kingdom without the king, they want justice without a judge, they want, they, they, they want the benefits of the Christian vision without Christ. In that world that we're planted in, our posture toward it in order to reveal God's presence, in order to be a counter, countercultural prophetic witness, our primary posture should be one of embracing suffering. And, and this is, this, this feels hard. Feels hard. We would seemingly rather the primary witness be really great preaching. If we just had great preachers who could eloquently talk about God, oh, you know, people will come to faith. That's not the means. We think if we have great and compelling programs, then, then we'll win the world. Then people will see, oh, wow, the Lamb is amazing. Prophet programs are good. Preaching is good, but that's not it. It's not the music. You can have the most eloquent preaching, the most effective programs, the best music, and that's not what wins the souls of mankind. It is when people see the church engaging in suffering. And so lastly, just I want to be real practical. What, what does this mean? How, how do we do this? Does it mean we, we run out and try to get arrested for our faith? No. <laughs> no. That is, that is very far from what we want. Should we pray that God brings suffering? Well, maybe if our ultimate goal is the glory of the Lamb and, and people embracing Him. But I don't think suffering is in and of itself just good. I think we grieve it. We, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Iran and China and around the world who experience suffering. We don't want it to continue. But here's why it's good news. Here's what we can do. It's good news because here's the truth. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of chaos and suffering and brokenness. And as much as we want to hide ourselves from it, as much as we want to hide our children from it, as much as we want to shield our eyes from the reality of brokenness and death, it is here. It is a part of our story. As much as we want to avoid going to the hospitals to see the pain, the hospital's there. Suffering is a part of the human story. And here's the beauty of this. I, I want you to hear it. The beauty of it is what the Lamb is doing, what God is doing, what the gospel says, is that God will bring resurrection from death. God will bring beauty from brokenness. When God gets involved in suffering, He takes the worst that the world can do and brings, it out, brings out of that the best that God can provide. Look at the cross when God's Son, the Lamb, 
the greatest act of injustice, the one perfect human to ever live is crucified on the cross. And what does God do? He uses the greatest act of injustice to bring justice for all mankind, for everyone who looks at the Lamb and their faith is in Him, and they repent of their sin and evil and wickedness and cling to Him as the ultimate sacrifice on their behalf. Then they become part of the Lamb and His people, and they join with the Lamb in the suffering for all so that God's goodness and beauty can be revealed. And so for us, it's good news, and here's how we do it. One, we should not shy away from the suffering. We should live in solidarity with the hurting and broken. Our churches should be places that's, that lift up the hurting. Sadly, and I mean this, sadly, oftentimes, Christians and churches, we want to hold up celebrities. We want to hold up or we find legitimacy in our faith, legitimacy in our church when we have someone who others see on TV. If Justin Bieber ever came to Scarlet City and we gave him a platform and said, hey, you know, share, he's a person of influence. When we operate that way, what we're doing is we're championing, we're, we're championing the celebrity, not the hurting. Our churches should be places that are safe refugees, not for the powerful, not for the people of influence, but for the lowest of the low. And this doesn't just mean the poor, because we know people of financial means hurt too. And so being a place that is home for the hurting, it means we allow everybody, everyone can be honest about their hurt and pain and hangups that when people in our community sin, we're not shocked. Sin is a part of the story. We have repentance. But people can be honest. They can be vulnerable. They don't have, it, have to have it all put together. Our churches need to be places for the broken and hurting. And then also, to embrace suffering means when our time comes, when suffering moves from being something we've heard about, something the pastor talked about, something we read about, but it becomes personal. It becomes interwoven in, in our story. In those moments, in those moments of great weakness, in those moments of desperation, in those moments of pain, we look to the Lamb, the one who suffered on our behalf. And we can actually experience a greater union and communion with Him then. Because He is a God who entered into suffering and out of death brings resurrection. Friends, in those moments, we bear the greatest witness to the world. John is writing this beautiful, compelling book to a church that's being persecuted, and his message is, they can take away your life, but don't let them take away your faith. 
because your faith isn't rooted in you and your ability to navigate it all. Your faith is rooted in the Lamb who will one day conquer. He is our hope. And when we enter into that message, the world looks and it sees something more compelling, something more beautiful, something genuinely real and hopeful that we all long for. We are the church, the place of God's presence, here as a countercultural prophetic witness, and here that when the time comes, we enter suffering because our hope is on the Lamb. And when the world sees it, they can join us in the cause. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God who entered into the world, who took on suffering on the cross so that we could experience ultimate life. May that message be the center of our lives and the center of our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.